0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, welcome this morning. Glad that you're with us. Special welcome to those that are online as well. Um, The message this morning, I did not put the notes on the website, but this hour the notes are on the website, and I also put last Wednesdays on there. I neglected to do that last Wednesday, and so I was able to put those up there for you if you want to go back and get a look at those. So the ones this morning, I thought I'd just polish on a little bit more before I publish out there for the whole world to see. So good to have you here this morning. Welcome to the month of April. Here we are. I'm noticing some folks uh, are conspicuous by their absence. We're missing a fellow from this family here, and uh, so we're going to trust the Lord about that. Lord, watch over all of you and your family members and those that aren't able to be here this morning. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel 31, please. We are making our way through the prophecy here, and... In the section of the book where the Lord is, oh, since 27, was it, or 25, actually, chapter 25, just a big segment of the book where the Lord is giving various prophecies, we'll say bad news to the uh, different nations around about Israel. And he's uh, talked about Tyre and, and, and uh, you know, Babylon. Egypt really has been the focus here uh, some about Israel's future blessing in these chapters, um, a lot about Tyre, the king of Tyre and all of that, um, and using Babylon to, uh, as an instrument of his wrath against some of these nations, which would then turn on Babylon, of course. But in chapter 31, uh, we're going to be reading about Egypt, and it says it came to pass, now it came to pass in the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Now, this is going to be the 11th year, most probably of the captivity, starting from 597, because of how Ezekiel was situated in history. So if you back that down, it's either 586 or 587, depending on how the, when, the, when in the year that began. So we're on 587 B.C., He's writing this. He did uh, also give the time. He often does that um, in his earlier uh, chapters, like in 29, in the 10th year, in the 10th month, and uh, so on. Lots of those time markers in Ezekiel, which helps us locate it in history. Uh, So verse 2, he says, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with fine branches that shaded the forest and of high stature, and its top was among the thick boughs. The waters made it grow. Underground waters gave it height with their rivers running around the place where it was planted and sent out rivulets to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was exalted above all the trees of the field. Its boughs were multiplied and its branches became long because of the abundance of water as it sent them out. Now, remember, we're writing to who? To whom? Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, he's writing about Assyria and using the figure of a tree. In the Bible, the figure of a tree and the figure of a mountain often refer to kingdoms, okay? That's what we're doing here. And this kingdom was, uh, Assyria was a very fine kingdom, big lush, kind of like a big tree. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches all the beasts of the field brought forth their young, and in its shadow all great nations made their home. Now this sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar and his part of the world uh, later on. And remember that tree was chopped down in, in uh, Daniel's prophecy. But here we're talking about Assyria. Thus it was beautiful in greatness, and its length and in the length of its branches, because its roots reached to abundant waters, the cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. The fir trees were not like its boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. So here's exalted poetic language to say, you know, this tree, this kingdom was amazing. I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches, so that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Therefore, verse 10, Therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height, and it set its top among the thick boughs, and its heart was lifted up in its height, therefore I will deliver it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations, and he shall surely deal with it. I have driven it out for its wickedness. Notice that. Why is that? Because its heart was lifted up. There's pride. And aliens, the most terrible of the nations, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains and in, the, in all the valleys. Its boughs lie broken by the rivers of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. Oh, oh, sorry, on its ruin will remain all the birds of the heavens, and all the beasts of the field will come to its branches, so that no trees by the waters may ever again exalt themselves for their height nor set their tops among the thick boughs that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them. For they have all been delivered to death, to the depths of the earth among the children of men who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, in the day when it went down to hell, I caused mourning. I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its rivers and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the nations, nations shake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to hell together with those who descend into the pit. That's speaking about the grave or Sheol. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the depths of the earth. They also went down to hell with it. With those slain by the sword and those who were its strong arm dwelt in its shadows among the nations. To which of the trees in Eden will you be likened in glory and greatness? Yet you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. So make sure you understand what's happening. Speaking to Pharaoh, think about Assyria, its great kingdom. God's the lumberjack. He chopped them down. He's going to chop you down too, Egypt. Yeah, this is a severe warning of coming judgment. So, uh, yeah, it's not a good thing when God comes to chop down your tree, (laughs) your kingdom, your nation. And no matter what you think, no matter how big you are, No matter how powerful your military, no matter how great your economy, God can bring it down with a snap of a finger. Don't let your hearts be raised up in pride against God. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Philippians, please, again now in chapter 3. I hope you'll follow along. In this segment of Scripture, Philippians chapter 3, it's verses 12 to 16 now. Our title this morning is Energetically Pursuing Christ. Energetically Pursuing Christ. Listen to Paul as he writes, Not that I have already attained, this is verse 12, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Thus reads the New King James Version. In his autobiography, here we've looked at the beginning of this already for a couple of weeks, Paul regarded all the high achievements of Pharisaic Judaism as belonging in the lost column, instead of the positive section of his resume. He regarded them as relative rubbish because he realized that it would be far better to know Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to have the righteousness of God through Christ instead of his own law-based righteousness. He thought it would be far, far better to experience resurrection power in his life, to know a share of the sufferings of Christ, to be made like Christ in his death, that is, to be obedient, to and live for the same purpose for which Christ died, and finally, he thought it would be better to attain to the resurrection of the dead, however God works out that circumstance in his life, than to be wedded to his old belief system of law-keeping legalism. Now Paul, that was all in, in really in verses 11 and uh, per- preceding that, up to verse number four. Paul is rejecting confidence in his own flesh. He goes on now to explain how he lives his ongoing Christian life. This talk about himself. you might wonder, why is he talking so much about himself? Well, it serves an important purpose. It underscores the warning against false teaching Judaizers who themselves have great confidence in their flesh and their accomplishments before God. Paul has none of that. And so he's saying as an example to the Philippian believers looking at me, I've left all of that behind. That was in my past life. That was part of my unsaved life. I have none of that confidence. He depends on the Lord to help him progress through his life with Christ, not through external rituals, but through a pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He and his example is the one that we must follow. In fact, if you go down and look at verse 17, which is just beyond the border of our section today, he says this, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So he's not just talking about himself to fill the space or talking about himself to pat himself on the back, it's to be an example to the believers there in Philippi that he has abandoned all of those false teachings that are trying to knock on their doors in the church. We must follow that example as well, not to follow the false teachers, but to follow good apostolic examples. Fleshly ordinances do nothing to progress us in Christ's likeness or knowing him or suppressing the fleshly tendencies of our heart. Colossians uh, says it this way, touch not, taste not, handle not. These ordinances have an appearance of wisdom in uh, restraining the flesh, but no utility in actually doing it. They cannot, in fact, restrain the sinful nature. We must have a lively relationship where we gratefully acknowledge His righteousness and diligently pursue, knowing Christ, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to his death. These things are the things Christians seek after, not uh, ethnic attainment or ethnic background or religious works that they have pursued or attained or things of that nature. So Paul begins with what I call the doctrine of imperfectionism. Now, I know that's not actually a word that's you know in my spell checker, so to speak, but it fits very well what he's saying in verse 12a not that I have already attained or am already perfected. You may have heard about the the religious teaching that is called perfectionism, the opposite of imperfectionism in the way I'm using the terms. Perfectionism says that a person can reach a higher plane, uh, I say plan there, it's actually plane, of spiritual life in which they possess what's called perfect love or they commit no more known sin. There are some professing believers who think that's the case. They commit no more known sin or they have reached a, a place of perfect love. That's a false and dangerous doctrine. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 make that very clear. If you say that you have not sinned, you're making God a liar and you're lying. Okay, The, the believer does not do what verses 8 and 10 in that chapter say, that is to say, I have no sin or I have not sinned. Both of those are there at 8 and 10. But rather, what does the believer do? What's in verse number 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The whole chapter really from in First John from like verse 5 alternates between the position of a believer and an unbeliever. So 5 is a believer 6, not... 7 is, 8 is not, 9 is, 10 is not. It's just a bounces back and forth. It's a very interesting layout that John is, is doing. You see, look, if we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with him. But if we don't walk in the light, then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So 1 John 1, 8 through 10 makes it very clear. If anyone says that they have no more known sin, they're not thinking very hard. And just the fact that they've said that Amen. is itself a sin. It is itself a sin. Um, under this heading would fall any understanding. This perfectionism heading would fall in our, any understanding which emphasizes our identity in Christ so much that obedience is washed out and becomes inconsequential. Or um, you know, if if you say you know I don't have to confess my sins. I'm I'm in Christ now. Um, the fact is that obedience is necessary lest we fall into some form of antinomianism uh, that is prohibited by the scriptures. The Apostle Paul is not a perfectionist. He is an imperfectionist. That word is maybe a made-up word, but it conveys the idea very well that Paul was a humble spiritual giant, if those things go together, and I think they do, in the life of a good believer, humility, and spirituality. He had progressed very far in his walk with Christ, but there were some incomplete projects in his life. He had not already obtained or reached the goal of the gains that he hoped for in Christ. Those things that we listed earlier in the message that he wanted, you know the, to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, be conformed to his death, to gain Christ, know Christ, all of those, he had not gotten yet in their full measure. Oh, he had something. He had a lot of things, actually. He was declared righteous. He was in Christ. He was forgiven his sins, just like we are if we're believers. But the fullness of the blessing of God awaited his final redemption. Romans 8.23, you know, the creation groans, awaiting for the redemption of the redeemed sons, the adoption of our, uh, of our bodies, as it were, the redemption, rather, of our bodies, Romans 8.23. So you can look that up and see that whole section there. And, and we do groan, don't we, wanting for that eternal bliss and glory, a new body, and more than that, presence of Christ and the absence of sin in heaven. But he had not been made perfect yet. Notice what he says, I have not already attained or am already perfected. That's a passive verb, by the way. Um, Yes, Christians are complete in Christ, Colossians 2 again says, which means that there's nothing outside of Christ and his provision that is required for us to be in a good standing with God, nothing outside of him. But even in that completeness, we lack maturity and are not fully perfected. Now, here's this verb, perfected. Just focus on that for a second. He says, I have not already attained. You know, I haven't got there, and and, or am already perfected. This verb is in the passive voice with a tense that happens to be called by those in grammar a perfect tense. It's a little confusing. It's a perfect tense verb that is translated perfected. So don't get mixed up on that, but... uh, in this context, the passive voice indicates that Paul is not the operator here. Who is the operator? Well, he who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion, right? Will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. The worker here is God. God is the operator. And the tense, the perfect tense, is a significant tense in the Greek language. It indicates a completed... Action a completed thing with ongoing results forever after that, okay a completed state with ongoing results. in this case, Paul is saying that has not been completed, and the ongoing results aren't there yet I'm not perfected by God yet because why God has not finished his work in us. I remind ourselves that we need to have both an energetic pursuit of Christ and a holy patience that we're not done yet. When you have a fault or a failure, let that remind you that you're not finished. And don't be overly frustrated or driven into the depths of depression because you've sinned. You are a sinner. But don't make it an excuse. That's why I said a holy kind of patience in which you are waiting upon the Lord and working with Him in your assigned way to make sure that you're growing in the way that you should. Besides these truths that we've mentioned, I see a couple of implications. First, if Paul has not reached the goals that God has set for him or that Christ has grabbed a hold of him for, if Paul hasn't, I haven't and you haven't, right? That's one implication. Let's be realistic. Our current standing in Christ is wonderful as it is. And it's, I mean, it's beyond words wonderful when you get saved and all the things that God has done for us and given us already. It's not everything, though. We have a good distance to go on this journey toward our heavenly home before we're outfitted for dwelling with God. You know, God doesn't take you to heaven immediately because he's still working. Oftentimes in my reviewing of my shepherding of folks in the church, especially as they come closer to crossing the Jordan, I have to think, what do they need? This is an odd thing if you think about it. My role as a shepherd is to think about the scriptural development of people and to say, I see something that I could help that person because God is working in them to develop them, to prepare them for heaven. And there's some, maybe there's some shortcoming. There's some thing they're not noticing. Now, I'm sure there's plenty of that in my own life, okay? It's easier to find that in others, right? <laughs> sort of than it is in yourself. But that's, that's what we are about, helping people cross the Jordan. Sometimes God does not bring somebody to heaven until that issue is dealt with in their life, that person... That interpersonal relationship, that whatever that needs to be fixed in their life is done. God works. Now, um, where are we at? I'm getting off my script here. Um, The second implication is that I see two participants in our Christian life here one is me, the other is God, of course, right? Obviously. But I have not attained, and God has not already perfected. We are workers together with God, not just in evangelistic ministry, but workers together in this war against sin and this progress in the maturing work of God in our lives. The implications push us to ask, so what do I do now? Where am I at in my life, in my walk with God? And so Paul then in 12b through 14 talks about the pursuit of godliness. Yeah, we're, we fully believe the doctrine of imperfectionism. We're there. We've got that, Paul. But then he says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And then he forgets what's behind. He reaches forward toward, toward that which is ahead and presses toward the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God. What does all this mean? I mean, we can kind of read that and say, Yeah, I kind of get it, but let's dig in just a little bit more. Like Paul, we recognize that progress in the Christian life is not automatic. It requires our energetic effort. Some some days you might want to lie down on your pillow at night, your head on your pillow, and say, boy, Lord, it would be so nice tomorrow if I would just be so much more sanctified than today. Well, what did you do today that would help you to be more sanctified tomorrow? Yeah, if you've given up the fight, you're not going to make it. If you've run out of gas, you need to fill up the tank. You need to keep on going. Um, It requires our energetic effort. So we press on to lay hold of that thing which Jesus laid hold for us for. And, And really, to press on means simply to pursue. When you look at it, it's almost obscured here in the English language. If you look at the Greek text, it's the verb dioko, which simply means I pursue, I run after. It can also mean persecute. It's that kind of word with those thoughts involved in it. It's it's like striving. It's making every effort. It's uh, it's like running to a destination. A couple times, like in Haggai, brother's going to preach on Haggai again. I think in one nine it talks about them running to their houses. You remember that, James? Running to their houses. Isaiah 13, 14 has a a mention of this as well. It's like the greyhound, you are like the greyhound pursuing the rabbit. Can you picture that in your mind? I saw a greyhound race. I just was thinking of this, it just came to my mind as an illustration. It said, well, I'm going to look some of that up and see what it looks like. And I saw there was a bunch of greyhounds running after this, you know, it's on this carriage thing. They hold it over the kind of the center of the track, and it goes around. and And they were just tearing after this thing. And then the carriage that carries that thing failed, and it stopped. And so they were like, "Urt, er, stop, and go back!" And they're attacking this, you know, fake rabbit thing, and uh, it was kind of funny. But f- picture that race. The rabbit that you're chasing is never going to stop. It's not like you're going to, as Paul says, you know, I haven't attained. You're not going to catch up to it. You're not going to be perfected yet until you're glorified. We have that goal out there, but we need to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective to hasten, to run towards the likeness of Christ and these things that he has given us, the knowledge of, of him and his righteousness. Do you have this kind of focus? You know, that kind of, sometimes we get into this kind of one-track mind, singular focus on whatever it is we're doing. We need to have a one-track mind. And at the head of the track is Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Him, the author and finisher of our faith. Do you have an objective like this? Do you know what the objective is that you should have? Do you care? Paul states his objective in 12b somewhat vaguely. He says, I'm pressing on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. But what is that? He defines it as what Christ wants for me. That's what I want. So it's kind of a circular thing almost, but let's just leave it like that for a moment. What Jesus wants for you, do you want? Do you want that above all else? Do you care about that? Do you want for yourself what Christ wants? Do you you will to do His will? John 7, 17 maybe? Do you will to do His will? Are you submitted to Christ that way or are you your own boss? Paul's a great example of submission to the Lordship of Christ. We can think about it a little more precisely by noticing that Paul has already told us what is that thing that he pursues? In verses 8 to 11, you say, what is that? What is that that he's pursuing? Well, look at 8 to 11, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, uh, to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, uh, to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and so on. It boils down, my friends, to knowing Christ, stating it in the language of Romans eight twenty nine. It is that he has predestined us to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. All those words that he uses in 8 to 11 are aspects of knowing Jesus Christ. This is what most glorifies God and pleases Christ. When we are like him, we're called to be like the human side of Christ. We can't be like the divine side in the sense of the you know, infinite eternal aspects of the divine logos. We can, however, be like the divine side in its character, holiness and so on to a limited extent, but as that is communicated and demonstrated in the person of Christ, it can be ours as well. He is our, he is our model, our image for how we are to live in this humanity. Back to the idea of perfectionism, Paul does not think that he's perfect, and we should not either. I do not regard myself as having achieved them, he says. Verse 13, this word apprehended is, is like you know to obtain or attain like it is in verse number 12. I haven't obtained yet. I do not regard myself as having achieved them. And, and he doesn't make up a, a mental mind game, to pretend like he's received them already, but he hasn't, doesn't have them in his person. You know, you can kind of think some people do this, actually. Well, they say uh, Romans 8 talks about being called and justified and, and glorified. And look, at it uses it in the past tense, and so that means I'm already glorified. Wait a minute. It doesn't look like that to me, I'm sorry, to say Past tense there is to indicate that it's as good as done, but it's not yet finished in our lives. So we don't kind of you know, do these mental mind games to make us ourselves think that we're better than we are. We're, we're realistic about what we are. Instead, Paul does one thing, and he says it very neatly. But one, and this is how, kind of more like a literal translation, but one thing. What does it say in yours? But one thing I do that I do is, is in italics. You don't have to put it there. It's put there for you know translational smoothness, but I like sometimes how it just puts it abruptly when you just translate the Greek literally. But one thing. On the one hand, that stuff which is behind me, I forget, and on the other hand, the things which are in front of me, I stretch toward. So he forgets and he stretches toward. Now you say, I can count. That's one, two. So does he do two things, or does he do one thing? I take it as a package, as one thing. It's the single-minded pursuit of Christ-likeness. What he's saying is, in order for me to follow Christ, I have to let loose of that stuff behind. That's the one thing. When you turn from sin to Christ in initial salvation, we can say that's one thing. We can say, well, I, I count two, turning, and believing. Yes, but it's all one mindset. It's all one mindset that says, I hate sin and I want Christ. Give me Christ. Give me his benefits. I seek his pardon on the cross. That's one thing. It's a single-minded pursuit of likeness. and I, I cannot be dragged backward by things in my past. Now, I want to think about that with you because that's a very important notion, and we run into this a lot in Christian ministry in different forms, especially in areas that trouble us. I want you to note the kind of things that Paul left in his past. These things were religious accomplishments that formerly seemed good to him. Are you with me? But he's left them behind. He realizes now they're not so much good as he thought they were. Not that all of these things were bad in themselves. Remember, we said he was a Jewish fellow. Nothing wrong with that. Can't change that, in fact. You're stuck with it. Once you're born that way, you are, you know, you is what you is. But considering them as meritorious before God was the bad thing. So Paul took those religious accomplishments, his education at the feet of Gamaliel, Is is Pharisaic uh, zeal, all of that stuff, and he he leaves it in the past. Religious stuff. Now suppose for a moment that you have some things like that in your past, your past religion. Maybe you did some thought you thought were some good things in your previous faith, your previous religious things before God. Paul is saying, forget them consciously decide to put them aside. They're of no value, not only in sanctification, but also, obviously, in justification. That's the nature of the things that Paul has in his background. He said, I'm forgetting all those. Some of them had bad results. And so let me ask you this. What if you had not religious things, you know, things that you used to count as good, but actually you had really bad things in your past. If Paul's forgetting his good religious works and leaving them in the dust, guess how much more you should leave your junk in the past. Forget them. You have useless things in your past? Forget it. Sins you did against yourself? 1 Corinthians 6.18, forget it. Forget that too. If you believe you cannot forgive yourself, I put in quotes, then you're living in a pre-Christ mindset. For if Christ can forgive you, the sins are forgiven. You cannot hold against yourself those things which Christ is not holding against you. Or are you better than he? Are you more strict than he? Or are you less gracious than he is? Well, you say, of course, I'm less gracious than he is, but you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to forgive one another and yourself, of course, as God in Christ forgave you. You're to be of, of like graciousness with Christ as he was toward you toward, toward other people. So if you're saying, I can't do that, then you're being better or more strict or less gracious than he is. You do not have time to. And energy. Now, let me back out of that idea of forgiving myself and go back to the idea of leaving these things behind. You don't have time or energy to think about these things. There's time and energy for one thing and one thing only. What is that? Pursuing Christ. Pressing toward the mark of the upward call of God. There is time for one thing, pursuing Jesus. There's no prophet in chasing after those religious things in your past, much less the bad things in your past, you are a new creature. The timeline has kind of begun again on your life. The greatest desire of the Apostle Paul is to know Christ and to be found in him. All of that package of godliness. In verse 14, look at it. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. He calls God that the the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is the thing that he really wants to have. The prize and the upward call are basically the same thing in their full heavenly manifestation. The goal will finally then not be out in front of him like the rabbit in front of the greyhound racing after it, but that goal will be in his possession Oh, what a glorious day that will be when you finally have in your actual possession pure Christ-likeness, no more sin, a renewed body, an eternal bliss. What a glorious day that will be. And so Paul then says, I have the imperfection doctrine at my core. I haven't gotten there yet. But because of that, I'm pressing forward with great energy, pursuing Christ, and I want you to have the same mind about that. Verses 15 and 16, he says, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. This, the same mindset is what he means. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. The mature person in Christ will be of a like mind with the Apostle Paul. It's that simple. Mature thinking tracks well with these Bible verses and grasps them intuitively, even though you might say, well, I don't quite follow it totally. I'm not there yet. Yeah, we're all there. Um, But those who discard Paul or look down on him are gravely mistaken. There are literally people who say, "I, I can't go with this, this kind of stuff. And the scripture is clear that we're not talking here about the word of men. We're not talking about the word of Paul, the word of John, the word of Peter and James and Jude. We're talking about the very words of the living God. And so if you discard Paul, you're discarding a major portion of God's word and you're near to destruction. I'll just say it like that. I mean, you take 13, maybe 14 letters of the New Testament, if you count Hebrews, and you just chuck them. And you look at Paul and say, no, he doesn't have it right. Instead, you should receive Paul's word as it is in truth, the word of God. This kind of thinking will then lead to proper living. Those who think differently than Paul are in error. Somebody, for example, who thinks they've already obtained salvation, everything that it offers, somebody that's a perfectionist, somebody that says, oh, there's no need to confess my sin once I'm saved. Such folks are mistaken in their mindset. Paul says, if you're mature, have this mind in you. They think they have obtained perfection, but in reality they have not. Their mindset and the facts do not match. They're not equal. They certainly do not have a mindset like Paul is exhorting here. So to remedy this, you get into the Word of God. If you have a different view, if you have a different twist and understanding on this, you get into the Word of God and learn God's revealed will for yourself and begin to run the same path of pursuing Christ's likeness that Paul does. If you do not, or in this case, if the Philippians do not, God will show them, God will show you, God will show you. And if you have a sound teaching, a ministry that's following, saying just what the Bible says here, and you say, no, I don't, I don't go with that, I have a different idea. That's not being like-minded about what Paul is saying here. And the Bible says, Paul does here, and God, if anything in this you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. In other words, God's going to straighten you out. That's the simple way of saying it. Now, how's he going to do that? Not by some divine or angelic visitation from on high, but by using the regular means at his disposal. That could include the exhortation of fellow believers. You know, if your believers, fellow believers come along and say, hey, brother or sister, You're thinking like this, that's not quite right. You need to fix that. Humble reading of God's word on your own part. You'll come to a better understanding of things. Uh, The ministry of the Bible in the congregation, like what we're doing right now, the preaching of the word, you hear it, you absorb it, you listen to it, you maybe allow it to change your opinion about some things. And finally, the Lord uses chastisement, and trials to do this work. A true believer will not remain in fundamental theological error forever because God will see to it that he's corrected. I prefer the book-learning method myself. You know what I mean? Instead of the board of education? Yes, I don't like that way. But you know what? Sometimes that's the best way to learn. God does that, to, for our benefit, just like our earthly fathers, you know, chastised us, scolded us, spanked us. Yeah, yeah, God does that too, for our benefit. They did it for whatever in however way they thought best, imperfect as they were, like I was and am as a father. But God does it perfectly. You can count on that. So Paul concludes here with an exhortation that however far we have come in the attainment of Christ's likeness, we should continue pursuing. We must live based on what we know of the Lord already, lest we be subject to severe judgment. You know, he who knew the Lord's will but didn't do it will be subject to many stripes. He who did not know, few stripes. And if we reject what we already know of God, then he'll take that which we do already know and take it away. You know that Matthew chapter 4, 23 to 25? How you respond to what you've been taught will determine how much you receive in the future. If you reject what word you are taught, and have been taught that it should be no surprise to you that you're not going to get any more in the future, whether because God withholds it or because you draw back and do not put yourself in a position to hear it anymore. You harden your heart to understanding it. And so the question is, how is your mindset for hearing God's word right now? How is your mindset for living at the level of maturity that you have obtained If it's a positive mindset, like Paul is emphasizing here, you're going to be moving forward. If it's negative, you're going to be moving backward. And you should not be surprised if even that which God has given you finally disappears. So what's the message here? We're energetically pursuing Christ, as my title said. There's there's no resting on your laurels in the Christian life as if we have arrived or or at whatever we think is we have arrived at. There's no such thing as a lazy Christian. And I wonder about that. Whenever you're adding adjectives to the word Christian, today it's common. Is that really right? Is there any such thing as a fill-in-the-blank Christian? I mean, if there's not such thing as a lazy Christian, I mean, there are people who are lazy, but Given a little kick in the pants with this sermon here. Yeah. There's always pressing on the upward way. New heights gained every day. But I hasten to note, as some of you may already have thought, the author of that hymn, you know, pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, the author of that hymn was Johnson Oatman. And inconsistently, it seems to me, he believed in what's called complete sanctification. He was a kind of a writer of, a, of this hymn in a Keswick kind of theology. He said, quote, the washing of the soul of a true believer from the remains of sin. And he meant in this life, not in the next. That appears on, on his view to happen in this life, not in the next. But I say, no, no, no. We move from one level of glory until the next, until we reach final glorification in the presence of Christ. But we can take some of his words and appreciate them. I'm pressing on the upward way, you know, a higher plane than I have found. And you know what's after the higher plane? A higher plane. And after that higher plane, a higher plane. Don't think about it like, you know, I've reached the I've reached plateau, Heaven's tableland, and once I get there, I'm all good. No, you're always on the upward way, pressing on, growing every day. There's a life focus here that keeps its eyes on Christ all the time. He saved us from start to finish. And our life is to be growing in our relationship to Him, our likeness to Him, our pursuit of Him and His heavenly calling. We're to know those things that Paul desired boiled down into this package to be like Christ. So you should be more like Christ now than you were yesterday, and more like him tomorrow than you are today. May God grant us that happy condition of being on that upward way, forging ahead with great energy, running with all of our might in the way of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us have that single-minded mindset, that puts behind us those things that are useless and even those things that we formerly thought were good and we press on to know Christ. None of us who are here in this room have reached the final goal. Some of us have reached much farther down the road because we're more mature, but all of us need to be yet more And, Lord, we understand this is not a religious work that gains us merit with God. It's the greatest desire of a believer's heart to know his Lord and Savior better, to have a better relationship with him, and to be more like him in life conduct. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.